0: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
1: Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub-advised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com.
2: This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing Less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Masterclass.
1: Okay. Welcome. We've got Ryan Labdell and Jason Giuseppiak with us today. My co host Rodrigo Gordillo and I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We've got a new white paper out by Jason and Ryan that we're going to explore in depth on risk mitigating strategies. And uh, why don't we go ahead and let Jason and Ryan introduce yourselves and Makita what you guys do there.
3: Yeah. So Makita, we've been around since 1978. We're celebrating our 45th anniversary. We have a long history of investment consulting which we manage or advise on about 1.6 trillion there in terms of advisory. And then we also have an OCIO practice where we have discretion, which is about 16 billion. And we cover all asset classes across the world. And we tend to work with institutional clients such as public pensions, private pensions, multi-employer plans, endowments, foundations, corporations, really across the board when it comes to the institutional marketplace.
1: And what is your role there, Jason?
3: So both myself and Ryan are on what we call the marketable alternatives team, right? That's a different way to describe hedge funds, where hedge funds have been a four-letter word or four-letter term for quite some time. And so you can call us hedge funds, absolute return, diversifiers, or marketable alternatives. And we are both senior research consultants on the marketable alternatives team.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, I want to actually, let's first start by digging into why the term hedge fund is so loaded nowadays. Like what's the, why is branding as a hedge fund gone out of favor?
4: I'll take a first stab at that. I think it's just under the hood. I think hedge funds was a term. A lot of people had allocations of hedge funds pre-GFC through the GFC that maybe didn't perform as they expected. If you're a trustee or a stakeholder, you think I have a hedge fund, it's going to do some hedging and then it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. So I think a lot of people had a bad taste in their mouth. And so many people have moved away from that and started to think about what are better ways that I can describe these strategies or these assets in my portfolio that actually reflect what are they going to do and when are they going to do that rather than just hedge funds, which could be a whole host of different things.
3: And our job as consultants is to make the complex simple, right? And a lot of our industry does not no favors by using these nebulous terms like hedge funds. And saying hedge funds is like saying mutual funds or ETFs. I invest in mutual funds. I invest in ETFs. Like, wh- What does that mean? And we have this nice asset allocation pie, right? That has a bunch of labels. But at the end of the day, there are no alternatives. There's really five asset classes. That's currency slash FX. That's interest rates, credit, equities, and commodities. You can be long or short those things. You can access most of those things in the public markets or private markets. And you can get beta one exposure, linear exposure, or more convex exposure through things like options. So I think as an industry, we need to throw out these terms like hedge funds, like private investments, like alternatives. Because everyone thinks that there's something that they tend not to be, and then they create an asset allocation that has a bunch of nice things and nice labels. But then when you live in the tails or go through those tough times, you quickly find out what you have that is actually negatively correlated, what is uncorrelated, and then what is positively correlated to those drawdowns.
1: Yeah, and we're going to get into why it really pays to have a good understanding of each of those three um, different correlation frameworks. Before we do... How do you think the hedge fund asset class conversation relates to the separation of alpha and beta?
3: One thing that became popularized, I think, around the GFC before the GFC was portable alpha, right? This concept that you can take some sort of passive exposure, equity beta, rate beta, credit beta, and get that in a capital efficient manner. And then just slap a bunch of hedge funds or attach a bunch of hedge funds to it. Because again, there's this mystique and this this culture around hedge funds that was created because they had done quite well up to and somewhat through the GFC. However, when you put a beta on top of another beta, if you take a beta one equity future and you attach it with... Even a 0.5 beta, say for a long short short equity hedge fund, and you go through an event like like 2008, you have leverage. And then if you don't have something that can offset that extra embedded beta within your, your alpha or your hedge funds, then you become a forced seller. You have to deleverage. And then everyone's, oh, that didn't work. I guess hedge funds don't work. Or I guess portable alpha doesn't work. Or other terms like return stacking, I think we could throw out there. Or in our case, RMS risk mitigating strategies, which, which again, right. all this stuff is, it's not novel. They're not novel concepts. They've been well documented throughout time. Us calling it RMS risk mitigating strategies versus portable alpha versus return stacking. It's, it's nothing new. It's more, how do we package these things up so that it can better resonate with investor and, and people in, in the industry so that they're, we don't have this curtain that everyone's popping out behind at different points in time, and then they point to some sort of just generic label and say, that didn't work. So we need to be really specific about the risks that, that we're right. taking instead of bucketing things into these labels that really don't help anyone.
0: And you said something there that I think is super important, and I, I want to clarify. You said you have this portable alpha and you're putting that as a hedge fund that has a beta 0.5. And what you're saying there is that you're using leverage. I think what's important to understand there is that what you're doing is levering up the same risk you already own. Leveraged by uh, on its own, if it, it's within a diversifier, then let's say a, a something that you have portable alpha on top or a turnstack stack strategy that has zero beta. Is different than st- stacking something on top that has 0.5 bit. That's where the risk is that that the allocator may not have understood they were taking when buying a, or a hedge fund when they were in portable alpha hedge fund. So leverage, I think, with especially in the retail space and the in the small foundations and pension plans, when those et levered double bull, double bit, triple bear, triple bull ETS came out, that's the type of leverage that everybody seems to be afraid of. And I think part of the discussion needs to be about Leverage isn't bad, it's how you use a leverage that could be bad, right? So that's key behind, I think, what you guys have put together specifically as well.
1: I mean, that actually dovetails really nicely because I think it's useful to use the structure of the paper to guide our conversation. And I think very wisely, the paper starts with a discussion of thinking about diversification or asset allocation from the perspective that I think many investors perceive it, which is I've got a certain amount of capital allocated to this asset or strategy, a certain amount of capital allocated to this other one. If I've got 50% of capital allocated to this strategy and 50% allocated to this strategy, then I have 50% of my risk or I'm diversified. I think you you guys do a good job of drilling down through the capital allocation into the underlying risk exposures to frame the conversation as we're not really concerned with how the capital is allocated so much as how, we're, how the risk is allocated in the portfolio. So maybe Jason or Ryan, I'm not sure which one of you feels most motivated to discuss this, but maybe walk us through how you guys perceive the difference.
4: Yeah, I think that's a pretty important part. And I think attacking it that way and thinking about it as trying to find things that fit in nicely with the total portfolio in mind kind of changes changes the perspective a little bit uh, where historically, everyone just has, you have all these line items. And when you look at it to your point, it looks really diversified. I've got 10 things in there. They should all be different. They've got a 0.6 correlation or whatever the number is. On average. But when you look in and say, well, what happens when equities do poorly? Oh, well, they all do poorly. It's not really diversified, to Jason's point earlier. So you're just building a nice diversified growth engine. It's just all economic growth risk that you have in your portfolio. And the things that you thought might play defense, you've got this really robust offensive portfolio, which Jason likes to say, but you don't have anything that's playing defense. You have hedge funds, but to the points earlier, you're doubling up on a lot of the risks you already have in there. So they're not really useful when you go through that environment and you really need the diversification. Diversification is when you really need it to pay off is in those poor environments when the bulk of your portfolio that's driving the returns is suffering. If you can't harvest it, when you don't have anything that's zigging when the rest of it's zagging, it's not really useful. So looking through it that way and identifying if most of my portfolio as an investor or an allocator is growth risk and tied to the stock market, I should be trying to find things that either are not tied to the stock market or move a lot differently so that I can rebalance between them and harvest that diversification. So that's, I think, something that got lost for quite a while in terms of how do I think about allocating different risks or capital in my portfolio? Yeah,
1: I think it's useful to refer to your paper where you've got a list of, I'm going to call it 10 different asset class categories or what have you, you've got private equity, global equity, U.S. equity, non-U.S. equity, real estate, high yield, hedge funds, commodities, tips, and investment grade bonds, all of them with kind of a 5 to 20% allocation adding up to 100%. When you look through this portfolio, it really sounds like it's diversified, right? You've got all these different words in there. They all, real estate's buildings, equities are Stuff like tech stocks and stuff. Um, it sounds like you're diversified, but when you actually look through it, what is that kind of ninety three percent in this case of the risk is allocated in the same direction, which is, let's call it cyclical risk or business cycle risk, and only seven percent is in the in different directions, which we might consider to be legitimate diversifiers. Yeah.
4: I think there, there's another probably part of the onion to peel back there. To your point on real estate, we look at these assets, particularly with the private markets assets, they look very diversifying. But if you actually de-smooth the returns, go back and look at 08, it all drew down at the same time. And particularly now, if you think about 2022, just last year, maybe they, they didn't mark down their uncorrelated but you didn't have liquidity for them. Many of them were calling capital. So you didn't really have anything that you could use in that environment to to benefit the portfolio or to use to pay benefits or to pay your grants or make outflows of your portfolio and not have to touch that equity piece of it.
3: When we talk about those things in private markets, it's not that, of course, Ryan and I have our own biases, but we appreciate having all the players on the field, whether it's the defensive players or the offensive players. It's just that we believe to some extent, and this all depends on the investor, what drives them, what their objectives are, what their constraints are, how they're set up, how they're incentivized. But it's finding what is the right balance across all of those, all of those players. And one investor's balance may be different than another investor's balance. However, going back to the analogy of sports, like how often do you have a football team that goes to the Super Bowl? with only their offensive team? And how often do you have a football team that wins the Super Bowl that has a crummy defense? Now, that might happen every once in a while, but that is more of an anomaly. And if we're really trying to build long-term, robust, durable portfolios or build a dynasty when it comes to the football franchise, then you need to have a high-quality offense and a high-quality defense. And each one of those teams, the defensive team and then the offensive team, they both have to matter. Right, So we want everything to matter, but not one thing to matter too much. And just to pull the thread on on that analogy a bit more, sometimes when we talk about risk-making strategies or negatively correlated strategies, people think that it only bleeds and it's going to have a negative return. Most long-ball strategies will have a negative long-term return. But you need to see through that by seeing how it interacts with the rest of your portfolio. How does the defense interact with the offense? And your defense can also score points, right? Like for football, a pick six, run back for a touchdown after interception. A fumble recovery, run back for a touchdown. A safety. Now, that doesn't happen all that often in the course of a football game. And of course, your offense is going to score more points than your defense over the course of a season. But... Just as importantly as scoring points on defense, even more importantly, you can position your offense to put them in a position of strength, right? By turnover on set of downs deep into the opponent's opponent's end zone. So we need to think about how our defense can also score, but more importantly, how you can put your offense, your private investments, your private credit, your private equity, how you can help fund those things during times of distress.
0: I like the, uh, the Chris Cole analogy of Dennis Rodman mm-hmm. because that's a perfect analogy for that. Like a thing that, ma- that bleeds and detracts from your offense over and over again. But it's got such good defense when needed that it, it, the hole is greater than the sum of its parts. So Dennis Rodman couldn't shoot if his life depended on it. Wasn't able to dribble the ball in the same way, pass the ball in the same way. He did one thing better and an amazing standard deviation from anybody else in the league. It was one thing, and it was getting those rebounds, right? To getting those rebounds and being able to just toss it off, best players, and that made them a winning team. I, the question is, would the Bulls have done as well as they did without Dennis Rodman? I think the answer, if you asked Michael Jordan, would be no. Yeah. It, so, so that's yeah, the same so analogy.
1: It, just griffing on that, I think. Without, we, I think we've taken that those sports analogies about as far as we can, <laughs> but but I think they were useful to prove the point, but i think a lot of people traditionally have felt that they don't just have the offense on the team right that's why they have 60% invested in equities and 40% invested in high grade bonds on average right that the sort of traditional template 60 40 portfolio so maybe walk us through how this risk x-ray or risk lens of viewing the portfolio helps people understand how the traditional 60-40 is not as well-balanced as they might believe.
3: Yeah, I will just keep it quickly with a sports analogy there because with bonds, right? Uh What is that? Is that offense or is that defense? (laughs) Maybe it's special teams, right? Because you can pretty consistently score points through, through field goals. But at the same time, sometimes your special teams can blow you up where if your punt defense or kickoff defense gets burned, that can hurt quite a bit. So so what, what does that mean in terms of the investment landscape? It means that you don't really know what the correlation of bonds is going to be versus equities. And if you look at that correlation from the mid 70s up to 2000, that correlation was structurally positive. If you look at it post 2000 up through 2021, that correlation was for the most part structurally negative. Now, most of us have lived our careers, I would say, post 2000 so we've been conditioned to think that bonds are ne- structurally negatively correlated with, with equities. However, they are temporally and conditionally negatively correlated with equities. Yeah, and I, and yeah I-
1: sure. And then, of course, having six, having 40% of your portfolio in bonds, 60% of your portfolio in equities, even if the bonds were a consistent, reliable diversifier, they still wouldn't have the opportunity to express their full diversification potential because they aren't in the portfolio with equities in a balanced way
0: yeah look I think there's this there's even more to double click into that right because what, when we say 6040 what does that actually mean the equities are largely the same in terms of volatility like most people are Doing mostly large cap whatever the 40 is interesting because i think we lie on average when i talk to allocators they're looking at a duration of seven to eight years right so that volatility is way lower than the equity market and so when you put on your risk goggle and don't care about the dollar approach you put on your risk goggles in that proportion in that medium duration and high ball equity the risk allocation is over 90% to equities and ten percent, less than 10% to bonds. But what if you that 40 ends up comprising 30-year t- treasuries? right? All of a sudden, actually, you're hitting 50-50 there. That 50-50 allocation between equities and bonds is long-term 30-year bonds. It probably gets you there. So it's not even the dollar amount. Now we have to, we're having to talk about What duration are you you looking into? And in the last few years, many advisors and investors have been lowering duration because of that risk that they were seeing coming. And so that takes it even more out of whack, right? So I think uh, truly understanding things from a risk lens, I think, Ryan, you said we have moved away from that. I don't think we were ever there. I don't think anybody aside from academics 50 years ago were thinking about this from like, how do I allocate my risk around my portfolio? it's always been a very naive dollar game. I think part of this discussion needs to be the great awakening of people recognizing the risks that they're taking and how they could use it to their advantage, right? That piece that you guys did there with the 10 different asset classes, when I look at it, I'm seeing all of them except for fixed income is really, that there's two risks. It's mostly growth. So- How are you guys educating? You're using a lot of sport analogies, obviously, but where do you take it from there? First of all, before I, I'm sure you've pitched this a few times, how receptive are committees and allocators to the risk story? Are you finding a lot of resistance there? Is there a lot of acceptance? How are you feeling about that discussion? It's gotten better over time, I think.
4: It helps, (laughs) right, when these things have done pretty well recently. I think there's just some natural interest whether that's performance chasing or whatnot, that just helps when things have done well and they've done what you said they would do. I think the next step from the risk, looking through the risk lens, is talking to different people about how to organize the assets. That can be helpful in recognizing those risks and thinking about it less through, let's allocate to 10 different asset classes, but instead let's use some sort of functional framework It's all the same stuff under the hood. We're just redrawing the boxes and maybe we're allocating. We have a growth portfolio. So I know that that portfolio has, it's going to drive returns. We're going to throw private equity in there. We're going to throw our public equity in there. We're even going to throw high yield in there too. And then on the other side of that growth portfolio, if we just separate it out, we've got some sort of diversifying or diversification bucket too. That's going to house things like fixed income, risk mitigating strategies or other flavors of that. And oftentimes we might think about that kind of diversifying group of it as breaking it out into two separate roles, even within there. You think about it as maybe you have an anchor part of your portfolio and an offset part of your portfolio. The anchor being stuff like short term fixed income, really short to intermediate fixed income cash could be in there too. Then the offset stuff being things like those risk mitigating strategies, whether that's long volatility, trend following, and other really more powerful diversifying stuff in there as well. And it seems that I mean people allocating in that functional framework has slowly become more common. I think some of the original kind of plans that ventured into that space were European, Canadian pension plans. Now that's becoming more broadly accepted across the US as people think about it through that framework. I think that can be really helpful in reorienting the discussion rather than just say, we've got these 10 asset classes and yeah, we're going to report to you every once in a while. Hey, this is the risks. It's still all growth risk. No, let's actually talk about our allocation that way. Group it together that way. That can be, I think, very helpful in fully understanding how and where and why those risks are allocated to.
1: Are the plans set up? To be able to reorient their investment framework to view things lens because often it leads to a very different portfolio constitution. and almost always in order to hit required return targets, it requires the use of leverage, whether implicit or explicit. So how is it how is a plan typically structured? Do, is that structure conducive? to this framework? If not, how have some plans approached reorienting or restructuring their constraints and opportunity set in order to be able to take maximum advantage of this way of thinking?
3: I'll comment on something high level there and then I think Ryan might have some more details. But many institutional investors have their model framework for asset allocation. Whether that's in the endowment world, the endowment model. And I'll use my jazz hands there. And and there's nothing wrong with the endowment model. It's just, what does that really mean to the folks that are running that model? Because it can mean a lot of different things, a lot of different people. Same thing for, and I'll do my jazz hands again, LDI, right? Well, what does LDI really mean? And if you take those two examples, you really have to choose between do I think about the world and in investing in terms of relative risk, relative return? Or do I think about the world in invest, of investing from an absolute risk, absolute return standpoint? And once you decide what camp you're in, I think you're either going with the conventional strategic asset allocation of all the different buckets and the labels, or you're thinking about the world in terms of these, more of these like functional risk framework And there's no one right answer. You need to pick and choose based on the situation that you're in. But if you can strip away some of the inertia, and I guess I would call it conventional wisdom, but it's conventional wisdom for a reason, right? Because it's worked for a long time. But that doesn't mean that something else couldn't have worked just as good in terms of the potential long-term return. But more importantly... Less about the return and more about the path of that return. And if you live in the relative risk, relative return world, you care about things like tracking error. You care about things like funded status volatility. You care about things like league tables. But we need to think about who is the true end client? Who are the true end beneficiaries? Do they? Yeah. And what their purposes are. What is their purpose? Like, why do you exist? You exist to send dollars out the door every single month, every single quarter, or every single year. The receivers of that don't care how you did it. They just want to make sure that, that you get it. Hence, that's why we, I think, come from this world of more absolute risk, absolute return, and making sure that we can raise the probability of having a better path at any given point in time, as well as throughout time. Because if you take... okay. Say, my expected return is, let's call it 10%. I need to reach 10%. But what if your minimum required return is 5%? There's a lot of wiggle room in between 5% and 10%. And what if your 10% over 10 years, the probability of achieving that is, call it 90%. I'm just using rough numbers. But what if you could achieve, Ooh. say... 8% over rolling 1, 10-year timeframes with a higher probability of achieving that 10% over those same timeframes.
0: It's achieving, it's hitting that target throughout rather than hitting that target over a 20-year lifespan. So I think we talk about path dependency risk and adverse scenario risk as a big issue. Right in terms of hitting that, it's consistency of returns that that I think everybody, like everybody in this conversation, really leans towards and tries to bring people towards because that's what actually matters. When you have a
1: liability, it's not just that the path matters experientially; the path matters in terms of your ability to meet that liability Mm -hmm. in the short term and in the long term, which leads back a little bit to the question. I know on this on the sell side, you've got mutual fund managers or banks, index providers, what have you that legitimately have a relative bogey objective, right? when you when you look at the buy side, you, you like actually the end those who are representing end clients, right? Those in the endowment space or the the pension space, et cetera. I struggle to understand how you can calibrate to a relative performance objective. Can you flesh that out for me? Like, What are some legitimate use cases for relative performance objectives for people who manage other people's money? For a per-
4: I think that's a really good question. And it's a tough one to answer, I think, figuring out how to set up what's the right governance structure. I think on how a lot of these plans are set up, they have a, right, they have a board that are actually the fiduciaries making decisions and maybe they have staff that are implementing it. And from the board's perspective, maybe they're they're comfortable with a certain risk tolerance and they're expressing that and say, hey, we're comfortable with a 10% ball or whatever that may be. Maybe that's equivalent to a 60-40. So let's think about that as my reference portfolio. And I'm okay with you deviating from that, but I want to know how far away from that am I going? What are the decisions that are driving me away from that? Am I okay with those decisions and bringing it back to that point. I think that's maybe the way that you can get around that and thinking about wh- whose responsibility is what. If the—if it's the board's responsibility to, say, set the asset allocation, say, this is what I want to do, and the staff's responsibility to implement that, which is, I think, often the case, to have that reference point so the board knows, hey, we're they're actually implementing something that's close to what we said we were seeking out at the outset. I think that's I don't know if that's the best way to do it or somewhere in the middle, but I think that's a pretty common setup for many plans.
1: It doesn't really Yeah. It addresses the reality of the situation, right? There's there is a question which we're yeah. probably not going to debate today about whether the board is meeting their true fiduciary objectives by setting those kinds of policies, but
0: I will say that one of the issues from a litigation perspective, if you're a board member, is that when you're sitting there, if something goes wrong and you're sitting there in front of the judge and what you're asked is, did this professional, did this director do the prudent thing as it relates to the majority of professionals and their opinion matter, right? Is this a prudent thing? And they're going to, and you, if you grab a random sample of investment professionals right now eight out of 10 of them will tell you that the traditional endowment model or a 60-40 is the prudent thing. And a deviation of 20% from that for the year that you're getting sued for may mm-hmm. be a problem. I'm sure you can make a case and still win, but it is one of those hurdles that you're going to have to jump over in order to win that case. Right, so it always comes down to what is the professional body of investments, of investors? What did they tend to lean on and That'll be your bogey. I think that there's a lot to that when it comes to being a director. The best we can do is in this group or in these professionals that are thinking about it from a risk perspective is slowly nudge the whole group towards mm-hmm. better thinking. And hopefully, by the end of our careers, we'll be we'll But Yeah, I think two. that's a big issue
4: there is the peer risk. As much as we all say it doesn't matter, we st- everyone still thinks about it. <laughs> We try not to think about it, but we still do. We still, what are our competitors doing? What's that plan doing? We all want to know what's someone else doing, whether or not we know that's like a behavioral bias or not. It's just a hard thing to fight against. And I think to your point, we're trying to nudge people in the right direction. And I think the question or comment made earlier about plans being set up to, I think what you were getting at is actually thinking about equal, allocating equal risk across different things is maybe... A yeah, a smart thing to do. Exactly. At least moving them to a functional framework, they're not—they're nowhere close to that equal risk part. But at least we're saying, hey, we're not recognizing this is what the risk we're allocating to, and maybe that nudge—that's a nudge or a step in that direction. I think.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and the, and the other issue when thinking about adverse or adverse scenarios is, especially with LDI, we talked about this, Jason is. What is the end goal? Is the end goal to give a per to promise a person at the end of this process a nominal dollar amount every year for X amount of years? Is that what we really meant when we said we we're going to we got you covered for retirement? I don't think we did. It's just it's nice to be able to have a guarantee income and that for that to be matched up against cash flows in your bond portfolio. It's amazing that we can do that. But that's not real unless we can guarantee zero inflation, right? All of a sudden, when inflation rears its head, which it's done for the first time in four decades in a real way, we need to start thinking about actually taking out the facade that that being that LDI is riskless from the perspective of what is the end client looking to get. It, from the perspective of what is the end client looking to get, we need to take visual risk in our PNL and our portfolios to have some inflation risk, I imagine. So this is another area that I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, Jason. How that, I don't know if you're dealing with a lot of LDIs and how they're thinking about that now that it's front and center. LDI is obviously something I have
3: thought about a lot over the past, say, 10 years or so. And I always just ask the simple questions, right? And there's never any simple answers, but it is, why do we assume that people will continue to be happy with nominal dollars year in and year out based on all the different stuff that can happen in the world. And I I always use the example of, in what environment do pensioners become upset that their standard of living is being depleted every year because inflation is running hotter than it has for a long time? At what point do politicians which politicians will do a lot of different things in their own self-interest and hopefully in the longer term, in the best interest of the constituents that, that they serve. But if inflation is an issue, then is that going to find its way through government intervention and regulations across pension plans, whether public or private? And the answer is, I don't know. We don't know, but we know that risk exists. And what is the probability of that? We think about all these things in terms of what is probable and what is possible, right? And you can't build a portfolio and go throughout life just thinking about all the possibilities. Because if you did that, you'd be like a hermit in your basement and never go out and see the light of day. But you have to be aware of all those possibilities. And at what point do those possibilities become more probable? And inflation could be one of those things that kind of tips... LDI into a different sort of way that folks think about it going forward. And the adoption of that will differ based on plan sponsor by plan sponsor. It won't be all at one time, but perhaps there is some sort of thing that happens that makes people radically change the way that they do things. Unfortunately, perhaps that is too late. Who knows? But that's why we're here, right? We're here to talk about those things that people should have on their radar. It's up to them how much they want to do something about it or how much they want to continue to invest in the way that they have been investing for the past 10, 15, 20 years. And at the same time, if people didn't have these ways of thinking and these structural asset allocation models, then all the things that we're talking about, those inefficiencies wouldn't exist or they wouldn't exist as much, right? selfish we want some cohort of the population to adopt this stuff, but we don't want everyone to adopt it because once they do, then those inefficiencies become not as inefficient and folks will lose their competitive edge and competitive advantage. And then we'll have to constantly adapt and move on to the next thing over some measured period of time.
1: Yeah, it's uh, just closing the loop on the inflation question for end stakeholders and whether politicians will move in the direction of building or regulating enforcement of meeting those objectives. Probably worthwhile noting that all of the pensions that service politicians are indexed to inflation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is that right? It's defined benefit, oh, yeah. inflation protected... Outflows. So it's it's not
1: lost pace, on them anyways, the be. importance of it. But anyways, we can move on from that. This is definitely getting into the conjecture's territory that we probably didn't need <laughs> so <laughs> stray into. the But all right. So you've mentioned risk mitigating strategies a few times. Obviously, this is the topic of the paper. We talked about the fact that bonds alone can serve a role in helping to balance risk in the portfolio, especially if you look at those risks through a risk lens. What is the potential opportunity of adding a, a, a risk-mitigating strategy sleeve to this functional risk framework for end allocators? How do you position the potential advantages of adding this to the toolbox?
4: Yeah, I, I think it just plays a different role, particularly if it's just core bonds. That's Maybe it's flat. Let's just put 2022 aside. For the last few decades, flat or modestly positive—that's um, great. But maybe it's not. A, maybe it's not enough. Maybe we want something with, that packs a little bit more punch. That's up a little bit more. And then once we start to think about these other types of environments, these inflationary environments, like 2022, how are they going to perform? Then they're not going to. Pre- they didn't perform well, and they're probably not going to perform well if, if that persists or happens again at some time out in the future. So are there other things that we can put in there that maybe are less reliant on that, as Jason mentioned, that correlation hedge between equities and bonds that are maybe more structurally oriented and correlated negatively to equities that we can have a little bit more confidence in producing the the outcomes that we're hoping for, or looking at things that maybe still rely on that correlation, a a correlation trade, but a different one than bonds do. So maybe instead of bonds, you're talking about, let's think about looking at trend following strategies, which you could argue is also a correlation hedge or correlation trade-off, but much, much different than what bonds are doing and much more dynamic than what they're doing. So having a diversified set of hedges, I think, can be really powerful in recognizing, particularly if we're in a period where macroeconomic vol has increased, and if we think that's going to continue, we don't know what the future is going to hold. We need to, I think not only have we said this, but a lot of other people have said it. You need to diversify your diversifiers and increase the coverage or the breadth that you have from your defensive part of your portfolio, your risk mitigating piece and not just rely on bonds.
1: It's really hard to to stay out or stay away from the inflation discussion, right? Because it does raise the question of when you think about Portfolio volatility is it volatility on a in terms of the real value of the corpus or the nominal value of the corpus? Because you could easily have a situation where the nominal value is relatively stable, but on a real basis, it is fluctuating pretty dramatically because of this macroeconomic or inflation volatility, right? You know, I almost want to set aside the inflation discussion and just maybe focus on nominal risk for the purpose of this conversation, unless anyone has any objective.
0: I feel the opposite here because I think we should go through the responders. We should understand what the levels are and really dig in on on the expectations of those different responders. Because I think what I love about the title of risk mitigation strategy is that it's not prescriptive, right? It's not like equity tail hedge. That's prescriptive. Equities go down we have a low basis risk response. Risk mitigation strategy can actually cover a lot of things. And I think many of the responders in there have the opportunity to mitigate inflation risk as well and probably did in 2022. So I don't think we need to disaggregate. I think we can talk about it as a full risk mitigation framework for the major blind spots that traditional equity and bond portfolios have. But I'll leave that up to you guys. I would love to start with, understanding. We talked a little bit, Ryan, about the different things that you could allocate beyond treasuries, but maybe let's walk through your responders, what their role is. Sure. So how we frame it in the paper is mostly
4: relative to equity markets or economic growth risk, just given that's the largest driver of portfolio returns as we've talked about. So it's thinking about if we're going to allocate away from bonds, what are the types of poor equity environments we might encounter and trying to group those into somewhat broad categories, thinking about it. You may have an environment like a Q1 of 2020. You have a really sharp equity drawdown, high velocity, happens really quick, unexpected. Maybe it occurs over days to weeks. That might be an environment I want to have some protection from. So in that for that type of environment, you may think about allocating to first responders or strategies that are that first line of defense and that sell-off. So there you have things like long treasuries, which has been used by many people for quite a long time. But maybe you think to to the inflation point, if that happens, I want to have other tools in the toolkit. I want to be able to consider, let's talk about long volatility strategies. Let's talk about tail risk. Those are all tools that could be used there. And it could even go beyond that if we're just describing what the goal is, if it's a functional framework. We're just trying to find strategies that'll produce that specific outcome that will produce modest to material gains in that type of equity drawdown. And then if that extends to something more sustained like 2022 or the GFC 2008, we want to have something that's going to kick in there. I would argue, and this is maybe my own personal bias, those types of environments can probably be the most damaging that really long drawn out sustained depletion in what your capital base is. So we want to have stuff that's going to kick in there and being that second line of protection and that drawdown. So things like trend following or CTAs, commodity trading advisors, or managed futures, whatever term you want to use. I think the core of that is just trying to capture that that second piece or second part of a drawdown. And the the third part is just diversifiers. So if we don't have a, an equity drawdown and we really want to hold these two things for the long term, maybe we need something that's going to do well, that's going to produce positive returns when the other two aren't working through a flat market or a bull market. So let's think about allocating to diversifiers more broadly. And by that, in the paper, we just mean things that are probably either in isolation or combination point, plus or minus 0.2 equity beta. So oftentimes, maybe you're thinking about things like global macro, risk premia, multi-strategies, relative value strategies, equity market neutral. Some of those things can vary quite a bit, but then going back to what are we solving for, let's look for something that's diversifying to those first two components to the rest of our portfolio, not doubling up on risk factors and providing that kind of what you might think of as a wrapper or allowing you to hold those two first two hedges until you need them.
3: And even the term of risk mediating strategies, I think... Even internally, we struggle with even calling it that because how, we're, how are most people trained? They're trained on the efficient frontier. The only way to get more return is by taking more risk. And that's true for a total portfolio, right? But when you're looking at the individual components, the individual ingredients, that is not true because you need to take into account these correlation effects, whether they're structural correlation effects or they're more kind of temporal, And what Ryan just described is we think of that as preparing, right? We're preparing. We're not trying to predict. This is the I don't know portfolio. That's what we're trying to help clients and people build. The I don't know portfolio, the prepare portfolio instead of the predict portfolio. It's not because we don't think we identify decent investment strategies and partners. But if you go down the rabbit hole of trying to, quote unquote, pick the best manager, like, what does that even mean? What does the best manager mean over what time frame and what environment? That's why you need, like, say, all the different players on the field. You need the defensive line. You need the linebackers. You need the secondary. You need the free safety and the strong safety because you don't know what the equity drawdown is going to throw at you. Is it going to be like a some sort of hail mary pass? And that's the case. You want to make sure that you have some people you know that are deep that can cover that.
0: Yeah, I like the, I don't know, portfolio. The title of your next paper should be like shrug (laughs) emoji. You know, just that's what you're going to (laughs) launch. Because it is true. It is covering for other contingencies. But you do have to have an understanding of what your first, second, and third responders are likely to do in different scenarios. Let's talk about trend following, for example. How do you see that as what scenarios is trend following and CTAs and all that expect it to do well in that second responder.
4: Yeah, I think it's just that big, meaty bulk part of the crisis or the drawdown. It's going to do poorly, probably, because oftentimes, I think across most of the institutional allocations, there the core is medium to long term trend. So, in those times where there's a fulcrum mo- moment in markets, they're probably going to suffer. I think they did, on average, actually probably exceeded expectations and. March of 2020, I would have expected if you described the environment, some quick shift in, in direction that they're probably not going to do so great, but most of them held up okay. Yeah. So that was, a, I would say, a nice surprise. But in that environment, that's where you have the other things to kick in, those first responders. Long vol does really well in that environment when trend following performs poorly, or maybe treasuries do depending on what the macro variables are doing or also tail risk, that could kick in too. So having things that, that help on those times when those trend-following strategies might miss it. I mean, you don't probably want to over-optimize the trend-following strategy to solve for every single environment because then you lose the other attributes of it With as with anything else. And then maybe when markets reverse up into a bull market too, they're probably going to suffer at that fulcrum point as well. So that's where maybe you have the diversifiers to kick in there and take a little bit of of the edge off that way as well.
0: And on the diversifier side, do you expect them to maintain uh, their AUM in a kind of like a 2020 environment, provide positive? Where do you see that as a minor nuisance or a positive expectancy during shocks? The way we would think about
3: diversifier is that more beta-neutral, market-neutral sleeve. Is it Having a better skew profile than bonds while also being able to compound at a higher absolute return, so think of it as a synthetic coupon in, in a sense it's not contractual cash flows, but it should have a similar sort of profile again with a better skew and hopefully a, a higher annualized return and and that 's really there. It's not just there as a behavioral sort of hedge, right? It's there because in time frames like say 2011 through 2019, first responders and second responders, so long ball and trend, they they weren't that additive, at least from a return standpoint. But again, if you rewind history and history played out differently, then they would have been. So you, you can, again, you can't predict these things. You need to always have these players on the field because you just don't know. And then. And I'll expand a little bit on first responders there, the long ball and tail risk, where when folks hear long ball, they immediately tend to go toward deep out of the money crash puts on the S&P 500. While that has benefit, it's in what proportion do you do that? And are there other things you can do that can complement that? So you can manage the path dependency. You're not just, you don't have this pin risk at I only make money if markets are down at least 20, 30%. Because in a year like 2022, that doesn't work, right? But if you have strategies that are trading around vol at more at the money vol straddle type types of strategies, or even to some extent strangles, you can help raise the probability of having a decent outcome, regardless of the shape of the drawdown, whether it's fast and vicious or whether it's long and drawn out or anywhere in between. And doing a cross-asset class also can help raise up probability of better outcomes, where who knows whether it's to come from the funding markets or the credit markets or the FX markets or the rate markets or the equity markets. You really do not know. Where last year, if you were mostly trading equity vol and, and your attachment points were down closer 15, 20, and you're trading those front-month contracts or three months out, that didn't really go that well. However, if you're trading FX vol, if you're trading rate vol, if you're trading commodity vol, you probably had a pretty decent year. And it just goes back to that diversification, not only the, the diversification of RMS as a holistic sort of framework, but also diversification within each one of the three components.
1: So how do you guys think about actually as the rubber hits the road with portfolios, right? Maybe it makes sense. To start with, in an ideal world, here's what we would advocate for and then work backwards towards the practical reality of where client funds actually stand in terms of their strategic asset allocation. And then how can you optimize to build in as much exposure or as much diversification alongside these more traditional portfolio? In a perfect world, what would a most resilient, prepared for anything strategy look like? Let's start there and then let's talk about some of the constraints that we typically face when dealing with actual funds.
4: Yeah, I think the nice part about a functional framework is it's customizable. So you can move things around, you can pick different tools and reweight across them, whether it's this or at a total portfolio level. And In terms of what's optimal, I think we're all probably just very biased on what that number would be. It's probably in my mind and Jason's mind, and I would guess you guys too, probably a lot higher than anyone else would say, (laughs) because thinking about it through that risk lens. So I feel like it's pretty uncommon that you don't run into any of those constraints. I think the first thing that we would say, and we think this probably makes sense, and I don't think it limits itself just to how much should I allocate to risk mitigating strategies? It could be with anything. If you want an allocation to something to actually make a material difference on the portfolio, you got to do it in size. You got to do it, maybe the number's different, but just call it five, 10% just to make a difference. If you're going to go into something, whether it's risk mitigating strategies, considering some framework like that, or even whether it's high yield and you're hoping that's going to make a difference, and you're doing it at 1%, 2% of your portfolio. The next question is maybe, is it worth the headache? Is it worth me going down that path? Right. Because it's probably not going to meet my expectations when that event happens. High yields not- and is gonna, that
1: on a risk much. basis or on a capital basis? Because if you're adding 5% to a short-term interest rate strategy in a portfolio on a capital basis, you're not getting any diversification at all, right? You need to allocate yeah. like- 10X your portfolio to get any benefit from it. But if you're allocating a a small cap emerging market equity sleeve, then obviously you need a lot less to have a similar impact.
4: Yeah. So by 10%, I guess I was speaking on a capital basis. Just think that's how I think most work through that conversation. But you bring up a really interesting point is once you do that, then thinking about the capital efficiency of it. Because a lot of these strategies are very capital efficient. I don't have to put $1 up to get a dollar of exposure. Maybe I put up 20 cents. Am I okay with that? And that risk tolerance might change based on the sophistication or just the experience or other different constraints as well. And that's, I think, a really unique part about a lot of these strategies is while we say do 10% to make a difference, maybe you could allocate, if you think about it and how many dollars you're putting up maybe you could allocate 2% to tail risk and have that make a material difference. So I think it just depends
0: on how it's framed. So you're going, when you're discussing a functional framework, you're laying out all the pieces and i doing an interview and seeing which parts may fit in independently, but you're not going in and saying, listen, there is an optimal risk mitigation strategy waiting. And this thing, or well, maybe you can tell me, is there, have you guys put together a, like straight out of the box this is an uh, this is the optimal waiting for rms and this is how much capital efficiency exists you them like that it's
3: really case by case right and then it's that's next to impossible to do because you have to factor in the behavioral element right but how do you do that like it it's by using math to show what the power of this stuff could be now of course We're all, we're our own worst critic, right? We're always thinking, how has this played out over the past and why won't it necessarily play out like that in the future? So there's a lot of subjectivity around how much conviction you may have in having something like the RMS framework or a package of RMS within the strategic asset allocation. It, It really needs to be investor by investor. There is no cookie cutter answer to that because of all the other things that we talked about, the governance, the structuring, the incentives, the the biases, and the behavioral aspects.
1: And the composition of the portfolio, right? If you've got a, a right. plan or you've got an allocator that's already got an extremely diversified global risk premia, strategic asset allocation, they're going to need a risk mitigating overlay, maybe a smaller allocation or need to think about it differently than somebody who's more traditional, got more of a traditional kind of endowment portfolio, hand-wavy kind of allocation, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, for example, like an endowment, and again, I'm using a generalization here, but I think when people think of endowments, they tend to think of a lot of private investments. So in that situation, would you want more in first and second responders and less in diversifiers? Perhaps, right? But we could definitely make a case for why we believe having diversifiers there or that market neutral sleeve also makes a lot of sense because of, behavioral aspects. And also in the context of relative to bonds, how much of a bond allocation does that endowment hold? And how would they view the diversifier sleeve relative to the bonds that they hold? And you don't really know that until you go through those conversations, but that's just one example of how an investor could think about the offset of uh, first and second responders and diversifiers relative to what they already hold in their asset allocation.
0: And also the idea of making room in your portfolio versus not having to make in your current portfolio allocation. So if you have a sophisticated endowment that already has and is well aware of how derivatives work and portable alpha works, they may I imagine may be amenable to okay, we're going to we're going to have these separately managed accounts for trend managers. We're going to have separately managed accounts for tail protection and you don't you just have to put put up some treasuries and we'll use that as collateral. To, to implement on top. So that 15%, mm-hmm. Ryan, that you were talking about is you keep your 100% portfolio and you're adding an extra 15% on top. And then there's probably ways of where you, or in certain in clients and investors that don't have that sophistication where they're actually going to have to make room in their portfolio to mm-hmm. include that RMS portfolio, whatever that is, imagine that way you're doing it through ETFs, mutual funds, and hedge funds, direct actual allocation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another layer, right? Like you can make a capital efficiency, but you don't have to. Right. It's just a
4: framework that people can use and take and implement how you see fit, whether that's a capital sleeve of your portfolio, whether it's we want to allocate this amount of risk, whether it's we want to stack it on top of a duration beta, equity beta, multi-asset beta, however you want to do it. It's meant to be flexible and used however best fits within a plan. And something I think that is probably important in the sizing discussion too is thinking about what's the liability structure? Am I negative 5% cash flow on an annual basis or am I positive cash flow? Am I 100% funded or am I 50% funded? That might drive yep. some big differences in how much might be viewed as optimal by an investor to allocate to this or other diversifying strategies.
1: What's the receptivity? Right. To the entire framework versus somebody preferring to go at a piecemeal, right? it seems to me that you've constructed something that where all the pieces fit very nicely together and are mutually complementary. Do you find that people see that vision and want to want to work each of the different sleeves into their portfolio framework, or do you people typically want to go piecemeal like they recognize the value in the uh, First responders, they, they want to put some long ball in the portfolio or, oh, yeah, I recognize the value of adding some of these strategic diversifiers. How do the conversations go from that perspective?
3: It, it depends on where they're coming from. If, they, if, an, if an investor already has, a say, a well-built out hedge fund program or absolute return program, then they already have the diversifier sleeve covered. And then they might not be so interested in that sleeve of the RMS framework. They might want to focus more on first and second responders. So that's a natural, I wouldn't call it bolt-on, but a way that they can further diversify an already existing allocation. Where if there's an investor that doesn't have any exposure to any of these types of strategies, then you're starting from square one. And what we want to avoid is you know, doing these hypothetical simulations or model portfolios, whether it's using managers or benchmarks, and then having them look at the last few years of performance. Because again, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Now, for example, in 2020, first responders longball did well. In 2021, that beta neutral diversifier sleeve did well. In 2022, second responders trend following did well. So if you're looking at any one of those years in isolation, you're like, I want just, I want more of just that. And that's why we need to put these things in a full, full context and show them packaged together, but then also dig into the weeds and show them separated out and illustrate that this is, this was supposed to happen in 2020 in in that type of environment. This was supposed to happen in 21. This was supposed to happen in 2022. And we didn't know those things would happen, but we have the functional risks set up to protect against all those different types of environments.
0: Like each one of those responders, we can say with a level of confidence that in this environment, they are very likely to do X. In this other environment, this other person are likely to do Y. What I can't tell you is what fire, what type Mm -hmm. of fire is going to happen in the next six months. And I think And what, I think you guys probably experienced the same thing we did, which is in 2020, everybody wanted to only talk about tail protection, long volatility. 2022, everybody wanted to talk about trend. Now it's a combination of other things because trend is giving back a lot. There's just, they're always trying to predict the next one. And I think the framework of preparation over prediction is the right framework to think mm-hmm. of it from. Just have a bunch of different, moving away from sports analogies, but yeah. different hey, fire departments. Exactly, and not getting too caught up on any single
3: one manager because we do manager research all day, every day. But to go back to 2020 and to see what long vol manager performed the best, like that has no bearing on the future. Now, if you had a long vol manager that was negative in 2020, okay, then that there's something else going on there, right? If you had a trend follower that was negative in 2022 okay, there's something structurally going on there. However, can even those bombs ahead of time? We do our best to do that. But how do you avoid that? How do you mitigate that risk by taking that more broadly diversified approach across managers that we believe are functionally doing different things? And you always need to stay on top of that stuff. But you can't just slot one, two, even three managers across those three buckets of first responders, second responders, and diversifiers. And expect that to give you a robust, durable outcome, where the more managers that you add in, the more we can raise the probability of a successful outcome. That isn't to say that you want to have 100 managers in a program, but you need something that can be reliable and robust and durable. And sometimes we hear folks ask, hey, what RMS manager should I, should I hire? And we're like, well, there is no
0: one RMS manager you should hire. Here are the managers that we've vetted from the management team perspective, from the process of their approach perspective, from the reliability of the team and their pedigree. And they do this other thing too, by the way, that may or may not be amazing at the time that you need them to, but we don't know whether it's going to be them. So here's some solid managers, solid management, and here's stuff that they do. You should probably use them all and you should do an ensemble approach. Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: It's a something that I think Is often not contemplated. Is the there is a trade off between adding more managers to do similar things versus like the trade netting that you might get from having a smaller number of managers that do that kind of do a few things, right? If you've got a multi strat manager that is giving you exposure to several potential diversifiers and has a diversified tail overlay, then you get to take advantage of the fact that one of the strategies in the multi-strat may be looking to add to a position in a market today. And another diversifying strategy might be looking to lower a position in a strategy in a market today. And net, you just don't need to trade nearly as much. And that can really add up in terms of potential alpha, right? You trade that off against the fact that obviously you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket with one manager, but there's definitely a, there's definitely a trade off or a balance, an optimal kind of balance to, to find there where if you can find a smaller number of managers, that's not a single manager, but where each manager provides a few pieces of the puzzle mm-hmm. and those pieces are nicely diversified. So you get trade netting, you get fee netting. If there's performance fees involved, et cetera, then that could be advantageous. How do you guys think about that?
4: Yeah, that's a, a good point. It, it definitely, there's a spectrum across the different buckets that we outlined in the paper. Like within trend falling, for example, it's, if you could, similar people could argue different views. Do you need three? Do you need five? Do you need 10? But the nice part about that is say, to Jason's point, we're not, part of our job is manager selection, but we're not perfect at it. I don't have any confidence. I could tell you one through 10, there's the top tip trend managers, but I hope I could say, hey, I have a decent confidence in saying here's the top five or six or whatever that is. And if you put them all together, and this also goes back to the question of how do you implement, how do you structure that? If you put them all together in separately managed accounts on a platform, they're all very cash efficient. You do get some reduction involved, but because of the stuff they're trading, you can lever it up a little bit. And maybe as you get 10 managers, you lever them all up to... 20% 20% vol and you end up with a 15, which is what you're hoping for. And you reduce that manager selection risk. So that's my, that might be how we would think about it there. When you go into diversifiers, I think to your point, there's a lot other strategies. They're much more diversified underneath the hood. And depending on how you're tackling that that problem of coming up with something that's extremely neutral to factor risks and traditional risks, You could think about it as saying, let's pick a couple multi-strap managers and maybe that gets you pretty close there. Or it's let's allocate to macro, risk premia, fixed income RV and all these other things and tackling it that way. I think there's probably a few different ways you could go about it. And I don't know that we would say that there's any one, I guess, quote unquote, optimal way. It just depends on your constraints there as as an investor.
1: So let's, uh, we're at an hour and a quarter and I want to make sure we get to talk about the what kind of benefit do you hope that in the end investor is going to accrue from having awareness and taking steps in the direction of adding risk mitigating strategies from a portfolio performance standpoint, and then again, from the benefit to the end investor of these plans?
3: Ultimately, what is everyone trying to do? They're trying to put up the highest return with the lowest amount of risk. Again, we can talk about fundus status volatility and lead tab- tables, and endowment model, and all that stuff. But what is mission number one? Highest return, lowest amount of risk. And that's what we believe that the RMS framework can hopefully help provide investors by adding the, that thing that can zig when everything else is zagging and can add to the bottom line when it comes to return with hopefully getting some semblance of a free lunch. The holy grail, right, is how could, how do you move northwest on that efficient frontier. And there's not many tools left in the toolbox investors can use to do that. The ones that have been used, I think, over the past decade now in terms of private investments, have done a good job of moving it north, but I'm not so sure that it can move it west other than the optics of the what cliff assets would say the volatility laundering. And again, that's not me or us saying that private investments are bad. They are good. But how do you make them better? You make them better by having something that can offset those risks so that you can have capital to deploy in those private investments when you go through those events. A bottom line for RMS and for investing in general is how do you find that next frontier of diversification that can make your portfolio, I'm not sure if it's optimal or just less crummy. Okay, because not Yeah, not right. in yeah, the it, right direction. What's optimal, you only know that in, in hindsight. You don't know that going forward. And
4: I think a really important piece of that too is getting that benefit, but identifying things that are going to give you enough liquidity so you can rebalance out of it into the other parts of your portfolio. If we or anybody constructs a risk mitigating or diversifying bucket and you have no liquidity and you just got to run it side by side for years, it may not be a benefit at all if you don't have the liquidity to capture those gains when you need it. And I could imagine, and I've heard from many managers, that's always frustrating, right? You have a really good year and all the investors come and say, hey, we want our capital back on the investor side. That's exactly what they want. And hopefully those clients to the manager are the ones that are also going to come back and top off in those down years so that you maintain that kind of structural or strategic allocation throughout time. And you're not trying to time, is this a good time to be in trend or a bad time? You're just harvesting the gains and topping off when you're a little bit underweight. Think, I think that's really important way and piece of an investor getting a benefit from some structure like this.
0: I guess that's a good point, right? One of the key things behind most, if not all, of the recommendations within RMS is that they're all liquid. When, if you need the money, you can get the money, barring somebody within a hedge mm-hmm. fund dating you, which is unlikely if they're making money. So that's, that's key. It's the rebalancing premium that you get of grabbing the winner and giving it to the loser before they, they mean revert is crucial. If that's risk mitigation strategy needs to be liquid. So that's crucial there.
1: So at risk of, spo- spoiler alert, what if a client, this resonates with an allocator, they want to learn more about this. What is the process that they were to reach out to you? What is the process you walk them through to, to work toward a solution? What would the client experience be?
3: I think first we would ask for people to go to our website and look at thought, thought leadership and read the content that we've already put out there so that even before we have that initial conversation, they have a good framework and foundation and understanding for where we're coming from. Because if it doesn't resonate with them through reading that paper and maybe looking at our webinars and whatnot, then the probability of... Sp- being able for us to be additive to their their investment framework is probably fa- fairly low.
1: Say yes, Jason. I The client's already come to you. He's yeah. read your paper. He wants to know, okay, what are next steps? What is, uh, what is the experience? What does the consultative experience look like?
4: Yeah, I, mean, I think it's the same here as it is for most other things. We've got to start with education. Got to make sure the stakeholders and the decision makers, whoever that is, whether that's a board, staff, or otherwise, really understands the risks and why these things are working and how. And then talking about it from a total portfolio point of view, I think is probably the really important first step, not just staying isolated within an asset class bucket or an asset strategy bucket or whatever framework it is. You got to step back and see the whole forest and don't get just lost in the weeds and talk to people about and have conversations about, what are the risks that I have that are embedded in my plan or system? Is that my really negative cash flow? Maybe I want to think about having more downside protection or my positive cash flow, maybe I want to think about having more diversifiers and and less first and second responders. So having those conversations and thinking about it from that perspective and not only just from an assets point of view, but liabilities as well. You got to think about yeah. the two and the interplay between them. Yeah.
1: Good. What did we miss? There's Beautiful. obviously lots of uh, further detail about the about the framework, about breaking down the constituents of the underlying strategies, how they're expected to form in different environments, and why, how the pieces fit together, how they complement portfolios and drive towards a potentially more efficient frontier and plan experience. What else did we without going down a bunch of of other rabbit holes. Any big picture things that we missed or that you might want to hit on before we go?
3: I would say on the manager side, in terms of, again, the hedge fund space, or let's just call it first responders, second responders, diversifiers. Sometimes we find managers that have diluted their, their value add because they're trying to solve more for that behavioral aspect of investors, where if they can put up something that's low vol, yet still a respectable return, then investors tend to gravitate toward that. And that's not what we're looking to do across the RMS framework. We want to get as much juice as we can out of managers because we believe across the three functional components of RMS, you get that correlation benefit. Over time, perhaps some trend followers, some long ball managers, some market neutral managers are not running their strategies as hot as they should because... And and this is a fault, I think, a suboptimal for our industry in general. People are too focused on the individual line items instead of the interaction across the line items. So the more capital efficient that we can get these strategies, I think the better, because then what's the most precious for, for clients? It's those dollars. And how do you use those dollars in the most efficient manner? And the more efficiency we get there... The more dollars they have to deploy to other parts of the portfolio, whether it's private credit, private investments, venture cap, public equities, public credit, that are less capital efficient. And I think the only way to do that, the managers need to, they just need to be open to working with, I think, clients in different ways, whether that's through managed accounts or through fund of ones, things of that nature. And then we as an industry, I think, need to do a better job of talking about that correlation effect and that interac- interaction effect and less about individual managers, individual strategies, and more about the whole package.
1: That's a good insight. That line item risk is real because it is a strange thing. We asked, chatted with Cliff about this. Why don't you have, why don't you run your strategies at much higher ball? And he answered, well, because... The, we, when we first launched, we did, right? Because we wanted to maximize capital efficiency. It is the most efficient way to deliver the value to the end client. The reality is that most clients could not tolerate a line item at 20 or 25 bull. It's just, you look at that line item, you're in a 40% drawdown, which is like a not even a one standard deviation event. And the client wants to pull the plug because the perception is that the strategy is not working, right? So there's this strange... There is this strange behavioral trade-off. I think there's a sweet spot where you're maximizing capital efficiency but you're doing it in a way that is still palatable for the end investor who can't help but at least be asked by the board on a line item by line item basis, why are we still investing this manager who's who's in a large drawdown, right? So that is a complication,
4: no doubt. And I was just gonna maybe add to that point. I think that goes back to thinking about constructing something that people can hold as a strategic allocation and not try and time it. I think that's really important is coming up with a framework where you can think about, let's just have this. It's going to be 10% of our portfolio and we're going to hold it forever. And we can do that and thinking about it that way, because we don't know, we can't time it. We, We have no ability to do that. That'd be nice, but I don't have any confidence in myself to do that. So if we can create a framework and what we tried to do in the paper was describe something where that might allow that to happen. And I think maybe another thing I might add that's a little bit different is, our hope, I think, in writing this paper that maybe is totally aside from the RMS thing is just hoping that people will start talking about what risks do I have in my portfolio? Maybe you think RMS or how we've laid it out in the paper doesn't make sense, or there's other strategies to include, but let's at least have a conversation around what are the strategies I'm allocated to and how should they perform in different environments? Because I don't think that happens probably nearly as much as it should. And that hopefully re- reframes the conversation in to the point earlier, nudges everybody in the
3: right direction. And, yep. Hey Amen. And we don't want managers to try to be all things, all people, because you can't be. Now, some firms, I think, can pull it off to some extent, but if they're trying to solve, say, for the, the RMS framework and say, okay, we're going to launch a long ball strategy, a trend-following strategy, and market-neutral strategy, but their DNA is Trend following or long ball or market neutral in isolation, that tends not to end well. In some situations, it can work, but we want the specialist, the the individual pre safety, the individual linebacker and the defenseman. We don't want a bunch of Ed Reeds on on our defense. But again, if you have a top player like Ed Reed, he can maybe play linebacker position too. Who knows? But we just want people to be true to who they are in terms of the strategies that they have to offer. And we can evaluate whether it makes sense to do something across the buckets on a case-by-case basis. If you're Dennis Rodman, be Dennis Rodman. (laughs) (laughs) The best expression of that. That's right.
0: Yeah. Paint your hair, get those piercings, embrace fully, embrace, be a weirdo. Awesome. Well, thanks, Lance. That's been, this has been great. Yeah, this is fantastic. Thanks for coming on and giving us a recap of the paper and the ideas. I know uh, Jason, you've been here before. I think the ideas have evolved a bit. And the new white paper, if you haven't read it, go out. Makita M E K E T A dot com. What's the area there? Thought the, leadership. Um, yeah. Thought leadership. Yeah, you'll see it there. I think it's four or fifth down the line. Definitely give it a read. It'll it'll at least help you think about your asset allocation in terms of risk rather than dollars and get you prepared for what is likely to be a very different next decade than the previous decade. And
3: we'll also plug our white paper that our colleague right. Colin Beebe did on the functional framework
0: that we referenced quite a bit today. Yeah. And what's the title of that framework? Is it of the, of the uh, paper? It's called, functional called
4: Functional Allocation framework? framework. It was published in January of twenty three. Awesome.
1: Sounds very complimentary. All right, guys. Thanks again. Keep us surprised of any new publications or concepts, and we'd love to have you back on to explore them.
3: Awesome. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investorsall. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.
2: This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve dash masterclass.